Hello, I'm Jason Solomons, and you're listening to Sounds Jewish. In this month's podcast, school may be out for summer, but the controversy around who counts as Jewish seems unlikely to take a rest, following the Court of Appeals ruling that Britain's largest Jewish secondary school was operating a racist admissions policy. Perhaps they should follow novelist Linda Grant's definition of Jewishness. Jewishness to me is Mel Brooks. His humour, his anarchy, his wit, his irreverence. He, he's the Jewiest Jew. Springtime for Hitler defines Jewishness for Linda Grant. Not sure whether JFS would let this new convert in, though. Yes, that's Charles Taylor, the former Liberian dictator, warlord and alleged cannibal. Yum, yum. We take a look at the non-Jews who convert to Judaism. And finally... Hello, my darling. How are you? She was something totally different from the way heroines were portrayed on, on the screen in those days. Why Jewish women were the leading ladies of Bollywood, a special report on the stars of Indian cinema. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Shalom, shalom. And joining me this month in our special podcast studio are Rabbi Jeremy Gordon of the New London Mazorti Synagogue in St John's Wood, London. Welcome. Hi. Uh, and writer Marina Benjamin, author of The Last Days of Babylon, a memoir tracing your family back to Baghdad, Marina. Welcome to Sounds Jewish. Thank you. Uh, does Baghdad sound Jewish? Um, if you say it in a Jewish accent, it would. How would, you, how would they used to say it? Baghdad. Bar- Baghdad. Baghdad. The G-H in Baghdad, like in Abu Ghraib. And what would uh, uh, and what um, mm. what Jews are from Babylon? They're Sephardi Jews. Are they particular? No, they're Babylonian, Babylonian Jews. Jews. Yes, exactly. Sephardi Jews would have come from Portugal and Spain mainly, kind of after the Inquisition, and there were some refugees who came to Baghdad. But Babylonian Jews kind of date from the exile of Nebuchadnezzar. Wow, uh, the Mazortis, Do they take all comers as Jews? We take all comers. I, I I don't know. I think this is really interesting. Goldemeyer thought that if you didn't speak Yiddish, you weren't Jewish. And Linda thinks that if you don't sound like Mel Brooks, you're not Jewish. But actually, Baghdad was the centre of the Jewish world for a thousand years. So, I mean, much more claim for Baghdad, I'm not going to pronounce this correctly at all, Baghdad than for Stamford at Hill. Yeah, exactly. And Mazorti, just for, for listeners who might not understand, uh, we've been through them all here on Sounds Jewish, from Orthodox to Reform to Liberal uh, to Mazorti. Just tell us a bit about the Mazorti movement. Uh, sure, we're, we're affiliated to the American Conservative movement, if that helps. But broadly, we are fairly traditional in terms of liturgy and practice, but much more open-minded, less dogmatic than maybe the Orthodox. Uh, that's uh, Rabbi Jeremy Gordon of the New London Mazorti Synagogue and Marina Benjamin, my guests on this month's Sounds Jewish. The Court of Appeal took a year to reach a decision, but it finally ruled that JFS, or Jewish Free School, the UK's largest Jewish secondary school, had acted unlawfully when it rejected a pupil on the grounds that his mother was not strictly Jewish. She had converted to Judaism, but not under orthodox rules. The court ruled that making admission depend on the Jewishness of a child's mother counted as racial discrimination. Guardian columnist Jonathan Frieden gives some background to this complex case. The case centred on an 11-year-old boy who wanted to go to JFS. Uh, He was denied entry to the school because his mother uh, was a convert to Judaism. That's fine if it's an orthodox conversion, but in this child's case, the mother had been converted under a non-orthodox method. Uh, As the child of a mother who is a convert, the case had to be referred to the office of the chief rabbi, the orthodox chief rabbi, 
who is the presiding authority over the school, who said, no, that conversion is not good enough and therefore the child can't come to the school. He doesn't count as Jewish. That was then appealed and went through a series of courts. And finally, the Court of Appeal has said that that judgment to determine whether a child can come to a school or not because of what really is the status of his mother, that is effectively to make an ethnic judgment. It's making a judgment about the blood in his veins, if you like, rather than what he believes, and that that therefore counts as racial discrimination. If the child had been barred because he didn't have the right beliefs or he didn't observe the right religious rituals, that, in a way, the court was saying would be fine because it's a faith school. It can determine who comes in because of their faith. But to say one child can come in and one child has to stay out because of who their mother is, that's a judgment about ethnicity, a racial judgment. And it fell foul in the judge's view of the Race Relations Act. The implications of this are huge because what they mean is that from now on, in the eyes of the law, Jews are able to determine who's in or out as a faith. They can say that they are a religious group and if you have the faith you're in and if you don't have the faith you're not in. The problem is that's not really how Jews see themselves. Uh, I always think of the Woody Allen test. That is, if you were opening a newspaper and you read an interview in which Woody Allen said he was an atheist, you wouldn't put down the paper and say, that's funny, I could have sworn he was Jewish. Uh, people believe that being Jewish is something other than subscribing to a set of religious beliefs. But what the court has said is, in essence, uh, that's not legitimate to determine it by some kind of ethnic qualifi qualification. It's got to be about faith, what you believe and what you practice. So now we have a clash between how Jews see themselves and how English law, as laid down by these judges, sees Jews. And those two things at the moment are in direct contradiction with each other. Jonathan Friedland there giving the background to this extremely complex and key case, uh, I think, to the future of Judaism in this country. Rabbi Jeremy Gordon, uh, do you think the Court of Appeal was right to, in declaring the admissions policy of Jewish free school unlawful? I think it's really complicated. I mean, there are a couple of problems. One is the one that Jonathan pointed out, which is that we're not a faith, we're a people. But we're also not a race either, so we get caught between two things. The Christians are very big on faith, you know, but Jews, I think, a lot less so. I have very little sympathy with JFS. Uh, they had many opportunities to settle and they could have made this problem go away. They chose to fight it and, and now they've lost. So you think it was a point of principle that they went this far? It's a huge point of principle for them and um, they're posting up on their website why they've spent £150,000 defending this so far and why they want to spend more taking it to the House of Lords and the European Court on Human Rights. And I have lots of problems with the way that JFS puts itself forward as a school for the entire community and then says, but actually, we'll only have you and we won't have you and we'll only have you. So anyone listening on the outside, this seems insanely complicated kind of indication of Jewishness, does it not? What I think may well come out of this process is not what Jonathan was saying, which is a kind of a belief test, but in fact, some kind of, you know, do you do this? Do you do that? Now, it, that raises all kinds of other problems about, you know, do we send people home, you know, around to parents' homes on a Friday night to see if there are indeed candles burning? But it could be that we will move to a place where you have to actually be more serious about why you want to send your kid to a Jewish school. The faith schools uh, like JFS lead, tend to lead the league tables in whichever borough you look, one of the Roman Catholic schools, the C of E schools. I have friends who suddenly, who I've known for 15, 20 years, suddenly they're going to church on a Sunday to get their son into their local school. I'm like, you've never even demonstrated any will at all to want to go. You've never been on, even on Christmas Eve, they don't go. Yes, exactly. I mean, the faith schools, I have some sympathy for the JFS's position, although I actually have a very intense love-hate relationship with faith schools. But, I mean, faith schools 
schools are by their very nature discriminatory you know they are they are they exist by virtue of a legal loophole that allows them to discriminate on the basis of religion and so this case is kind of you can kind of see why they're in a way uncomprehending about this because as far as they were concerned they were carrying out their usual discriminatory practices it's just in this issue what it's highlighted i think is that judaism is a kind of you know non-uniform um, a religious entity. We're going to hear from three people who spend a lot of their professional life thinking about Jewishness. Novelist and self-declared Jewish atheist Linda Grant, Rabbi Laura Jana Klausner of the Reform Aleth Garden Synagogue, former guest on this show, and writer David Badanis. What does Jewishness mean to them? Let's hear from Linda Grant first. I have no religion whatsoever. Um, um, although, having said that, I have been told that not believing in God is absolutely no bar to full synagogue membership. Yesterday I stumbled upon a website which graded how Jewish various Jews were, and they defined the most Jewish Jew as Mel Brooks. He was the only one who got 15 points. Not even Woody Allen got 15 points. Jewishness to me is Mel Brooks. He contains everything that there is about Jewishness in one person, um, which is to do with his humour, his anarchy, his wit, his irreverence. He, he's the Jewiest Jew, if you, if you like, and that's what I would aspire to. One of the other issues that comes to mind with the uh, um, JFS ruling is that a lot of uh, people uh, talk with great vehemence about religious traditions, but they don't actually go ahead and read much about the religious traditions. The early Hebrews came together from all sorts of different people. There were uh, almost certainly some uh, escaped uh, slaves from Egypt famously. There were uh, refugees from the uh, city-states of Canaan and the lowlands who were being destroyed by these mysterious invaders called the Sea Peoples, and they were coming up. There were um, uh, agriculturalists, there were pastoralists, there were herdsmen. There were all sorts of groups coming together, and that group came together. They weren't uh, chosen in any way. They became the uh, early Hebrews. They became the Israelites, and the way they became was by following the commandments and acting justly before the Lord. So if for them, it wasn't an, a random ethnic group that happened, to, which is closed to outsiders, and was randomly selected uh, to be Jewish and to do these things. Rather, it was the act of doing these positive things together that made them be created and become Jewish. For me, Judaism is neither a religion or a race. And I love it that however much people want to limit and control Jews by defining us, it's nearly impossible. A wonderful thing about Judaism is it's so varied, colourful and diverse and that people feel Jewish in very different and often contradictory ways. For me, Judaism is about peoplehood, about shared history, laughter and tears, about a shared land with the accompanying joys and angst. It's about shared language, laws and concepts of God, and also includes those with no concept of God. Defining Jews is a slippery, divisive and endless task. However we see ourselves, the definition that I clearly reject is any form of race. Any suggestion of genetic similarity or shared physical characteristics is inaccurate and dangerous. Well, according to Rabbi Laura there, the wonderful thing about Jews, unlike Tiggers, is that no one's the only one. Uh, Marina, does that chime with your sense of Jewishness? Um, yes, I really liked what Laura had to say, actually, because she 
gave us a definition of Judaism that allowed you not exactly to pick and mix, because that doesn't have very positive connotations, that phrase, but at least to find points of entry. And I think Judaism, I, I found in my personal dealings with it, that um, there aren't always sufficient points of entry. Do you have children? Well, I did send, yes, I do, and I sent my daughter to a Jewish primary school. But, I mean, I have to confess, you know, I sent her to a Jewish primary school because I felt that I couldn't give her the Jewish education she wanted to have. My husband is a Christian atheist. I'm a secular Jew. And between us, she wasn't going to get any of it. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, but for JFS, that would probably be all right, really. She would be Jewish, your daughter. Well, I think what's interesting about that, my reasons, yes, she would be Jewish if they go down the racial bloodline route, she'd be Jewish. But if they go down the religious test route, she wouldn't stand a chance in hell. And I don't know as well if I want her to be in a school that would be... that. What appealed to me about the school that I did send her to was its diversity, was the fact that it didn't just have ethnic Jews or it didn't just have religious Jews. It was a real mix of people who, for reasons of their own wanted to come together and form a community and support a Jewish school, a school that was oriented around Jewish life. I just have this problem with with Linda. I just have a problem with defining Judaism on the basis of a kind of a shrug and a and a lilt and a little bit of Yiddish because it cuts out fifty percent of the Jewish I world. mean anyone can open a bagel shop. And, and indeed if you walk up uh, Cricklewood you see a whole bunch of bagel shops owned by not Jews. And I'm worried also that, you know, I I care for the future of Judaism. I think that if all you have is a a kind of a shrug and one generation, there's just nothing left. I think, think, Marini, you're absolutely right. And as a rabbi, as a sort of a gatekeeper, I feel this very strongly. We've got to keep the doors wide open. Are we not making the, uh, the, the, a rod for our own backs here with this, with this ruling? Are we going to be feeling the reverberations of this for generations to come? I think there's going to be a lot of burnt paper. Um, because I think every Jewish school is going to have to rewrite its admission criteria. And everybody is very nervous, and it's going to be a huge amount of work. Um, and I don't know where the edges of it are. Names like Rose, Ezra, Ruby Myers. Sounds like cosy Jewish grandmothers from the East End, don't they? They're in fact leading ladies from the early days of Bollywood. It's a little known story that many of the stars of Indian cinema were in fact from Indian Jewish families who'd originally come to India decades earlier from Baghdad and other Arab cities. Reporter Eric Malinsky speaks to film scholars as well as friends and relatives of these once beloved but now mostly forgotten actresses of the Indian silver screen. When Bollywood was just beginning back in the 1920s, movie producers had a big problem. They couldn't cast female roles because Hindu and Muslim women were not allowed to act in the movies. In fact, any kind of public performance was considered improper, verging on prostitution. Film studies professor Nipa Majumdar some of the performing women, the Indian performing women who played in the movies, there was absolute silence about where they came from because they did, in fact, draw on stars who were might as well have been prostitutes. So how would Bollywood find its movie stars? Well, they often turned to Anglo-Indian women, children of British diplomats and Indian citizens that were outcasts in both societies. But there was another ethnic group right there in Bombay that had no taboo against public performance. Baghdadi Jews, like Rose Ezra, who was a leading lady in the 1930s. Her daughter Cynthia remembers how the fans flocked to her. They would recognize her car. She had a Pontiac in those days. And they'd all come running up and banging on the door, look at her. And even when she was not in the car, 
they would come up and peer inside, yeah. Rose may have been accepted by Indian audiences, but like most Baghdadi Jews, she identified more with Western culture. She couldn't read or write Hindi, and I think that goes for the other actresses too. She had a male secretary that read the dialogue to her in Hindi, and she wrote it down phonetically and then studied it from the phonetical notes. But the biggest Bollywood star of the 1920s and 30s was a nice Jewish girl named Ruby Myers. Her screen name was Solochina. Now, in the case of Ruby Myers, a lot was made about her private life, mainly because that she started out as a telephone girl and was discovered in that role, which kind of matched the kind the stories told about Hollywood stars starting, in, you know, as working class girls, then making it in Hollywood. In Indian cinema, the trajectory was actually the opposite. You didn't want working class girls in the movies. You wanted cultured ladies. Baghdadi Jewish actresses fit a perfect niche. They were outside the Indian caste system, so they offended no insensitivities. And they had this indefinable ethnic look, which got them the best parts. India was becoming a modern country, but it was still under British rule. Audiences wanted to see characters who were caught between two worlds, like Ruby Myers. In a single movie, for example, a film called Indira, in which she played this very westernized Indian woman who by the end of the movie learns her lesson and becomes appropriately Hindu-Indian. By the 1950s, everything had changed. Social norms had relaxed. Progressive, upper-class Hindu women had broken the barrier against public performance. In the partition of India and Pakistan, it created massive social upheaval, which prompted the Baghdadi Jews to leave and move to Israel or the West. It seemed like the era of Bollywood Jewish stars was over. Until... For hot, Ezekiel Nadira came along, or, as she was known to audiences, Nadira. Nadira Appa had made a very startling debut with a film called An. Deep Dean Naval met Nadira on the set of a movie. They were a generation apart, but they became good friends and talked every morning until Nadira died in 2006. She was something totally different from the way heroines were portrayed on on the screen in those days. Uh, They were kind of demure, they were beautiful, they were coy, they were shy, you know, and here came somebody fiery and very straightforward, very forthright. Uh, Her presence came to be symbolized with that kind of an image. Nadira does not have a lot of lines in her debut film, On, but she sends smoldering looks towards her male co-star with her sultry eyes, in sharp contrast to the innocent, modestly dressed Indian heroine. According to Professor Majumdar, Indian audiences were feeling very nationalistic at the time, and an actress who didn't quite look Indian, like Nadira, was pigeonholed into a particular kind of role. At this time, if you have Anglo-Indians, they usually play what Nadira ended up playing later, which is the bad girl, the, the cabaret dancer, and be the bad westernized woman. Hello, my darling. How are you? Like in the film Shri 420, when she insults the good girl in English. Goodbye, darling. <laughs> One day I was sitting on a bed resting against the pillow, and, and I said... Uh, something about Islam, and she said, well, I wouldn't know too much about that in detail, as not the way you're asking me, the meaning and all that, because I'm Jewish. 
uh, and I said, what? I kind of jumped off, you know, the bed. And I said, what? Since when have you been Jewish? I mean, you have been Nadira all your life. And Nadira is a Muslim name. And she said, well, Nadira is also a Jewish name. <laughs> and she says, I'm, I'm a staunch Jewish. <laughs> when I met her the very first time, this is what all we talked about. I mean, it was very, very much on her mind. Joan Roth travels the world photographing Jewish women. She met Nadira in the 1970s, and they also became good friends. At that point, Nadira was feeling depressed. She didn't have a family of her own. Her mother warned her that if she acted in these risque roles, that no Jewish man would ever marry her. And she said none did. And I asked her if she were to come back again in life, would she choose to be a uh, star or a Jewish woman? And she said she'd still have to come back as twins, one to marry a Jewish man and one to be a star. Eric Malinsky reporting. And that feature was first broadcast on Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast from the American Jewish news and culture site Tablet. Do see our Sounds Jewish page for more details about that. Uh, Marina, you wrote a book about your own family roots in Baghdad, uh, where many of those families of Indian Jewish actresses uh, seem to have come from. It's an amazing story and, and little known, but you've got some disputation with the facts. Well, only, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll refer, before I before I mention the Baghdadi Jews, I'll just refer to the, the point I was kind of shaking my head at, where where he said, oh, they will turn to other minority ethnic groups who had no injunction against performing. Not true. The Baghdadi Jews were incredibly kind of bourgeois, and they were also very um, conservative community. They would have absolutely scorned, you know, a woman who was performing on the stage, just as the Hindu groups would. So, um, I, But I have an idea as to why the Indian Jews didn't suffer that kind of censure. And I think that's you see that in a lot of immigrant communities when they actually leave the, the, the nub of censure and and propriety of the hometown. They actually kind of free themselves in some ways. And I wonder if that might have something to do with it. I mean, I love that piece. I just thought it was fantastic and I'd never heard any of it. But the thing that struck me was that it's the story of we need something done. No local person can do it. So let's bring in the Jew. And actually, that's the story of how we came back into England. That's, you know, it's the story of Jewish bankers, Jewish moneylenders. And I, I just think that through history, Jews have just been this really useful kind of outlet for the kind of jobs that, you know, you want someone to do, but you can't do them as the sort of local religious uh, sort of structure of society and power and, and just to sort of see it coming out from such a different world that really struck me. Can I just add <laughs> one final thing to what Jeremy was saying about the Jew as you know doing the dirty jobs that no one else wants to do well apparently in these Bollywood films the Jews often played the, the Jewish women played the bad character the wicked stepmother you know not the lovely you know romantic heroine who was innocent but the kind of the knowing outsiderish nasty soul. <laughs> I mean we recognize that right I mean that's you know it's Fagin. It's, I mean, you know, all these kinds mm -hmm. of all these kinds of stories are the same wherever you cut into our history. It's been reported in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz that former Liberian dictator Charles Taylor has recently decided that he wants to be Jewish. He wants to convert to Judaism, according to one of his wives, that is. Apparently the former warlord, the first African dictator to appear before the International Tribunal, is said to really, really want to be a Jew. So, what would make someone actually choose to join this faith? Or is that ethnicity? Former Ali G writer and performer Jamie Glassman finds out. Charles Taylor is the guy who allegedly conscripted children to fight in the war in Sierra Leone, was known to bury pregnant women alive, 
ordered human sacrifices and forced his soldiers to be cannibals in order to terrorize their enemies. A bit of a character, you could say. He's not the kind of guy whose house you'd want to have Seder in, and not just for his liberal stance on Kashrut. Jews have historically had a funny attitude towards converts. Not necessarily funny ha-ha, rather funny weird, or even funny a teensy bit racist. There's a certain unspoken snobbishness towards people who convert, as if they're somehow inferior. In our defence, it's been hardwired into Jews to suspect anyone who would choose to be Jewish. If someone approaches a rabbi wishing to convert, the rabbi is meant to discourage them, to actually send them away three times, and only convert them if they come back a fourth time. This struggle is meant to echo the lifelong struggle of being a Jew. You see, inherent in growing up Jewish is the feeling that Jewish life is a hardship, that non-Jews with their straight hair, ball games and table manners would never understand. Being Jewish is a necessary burden, like council tax, NATO and the French. What kind of a crazy person would actually choose any of these? And more's the point, what's in it for us? Sure, there have been famous people who've converted for the love of Talmudic scholarship, for the klezmer music or for the kugel, but what do each of them add to the people of Israel? Well, According to my extensive research on both Wikipedia and Google, Taylor follows in a long line of illustrious converts, some more surprising than others, but each of them has added something wonderful to the already rich tapestry of Jewish life. One of the first converts to Judaism was Ruth, you know, King David's grandmother. She brought with her a nobility and a tenderness into Jewish life, a loyalty and a loving kindness that is still felt thousands of years later. More recently, there's high-profile Magen David wearer Sammy Davis Jr. It may surprise you to know that Davis Jr. was not actually born Jewish. I dreck you not. As well as laughter and song, Sammy added much-needed pizzazz and glamour to the Jewish people. Not only was he friends with Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra, he starred in the movie Cannonball Run. Enough said. Here's one. Jacqueline Dupre. Her of the powerfully melancholic Elgar recitals. She played like she'd suffered for 5,000 years, so the only surprise was that she wasn't born Jewish in the first place. Her contribution? Well, the great Jewish Philharmonia in the sky has about 1,200 violinists and now one cellist. How about Felicity Kendall? Yes, star of The Good Life and my adolescent fantasies throughout the early 80s, Kendall had the least Jewish tuchus of any woman north of Vatican City. She brought a whole new shape of bottom to the Jewish gene pool. And talking of Tuchus, Marilyn Monroe. Yes, Marilyn herself was a matzofresser. Research is unclear why exactly she converted to marry playwright Arthur Miller, because she was intellectually fascinated by Maimonides' Mishni Torah, or for the guilt. Either way, Marilyn gave Jews the furthest they've been inside the White House until the West Wing's Toby Ziegler and Josh Lyman came along. So what of Chuck Taylor? Rapist of Monrovia, scourge of West Africa. What is he going to add to Jewish life? Well, I've never actually tried cannibalism, so I can't really criticise it. 
Perhaps Taylor will bring a merciless streak back to the Jewish people. Apparently, the third temple won't come about until Jews start taking their sacrificing duties a little more seriously. And Taylor's vast experience in the art, albeit of the human variety, may set us in good stead with the Lord. And I hear he dances a mean merengue. So come on in, Charles, and help yourself to a hamantaschen. Hamantaschen are Haman's ears. Actually, they're literally based on the ears of a villain in Jewish law, Haman, uh, but they're not really his ears, they're pastries. But in Charles Taylor's case, they could well be. You can catch Jamie Glassman performing in the bromantic comedy Britain's Best Mates throughout August at the Pleasant Dome at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. My first job in show business was at the Pleasance. Ah, Edinburgh. Uh, I didn't know about Marilyn Monroe being Jewish. I mean, presumably that was for for Arthur Miller. Did you know that she was Jewish? Yeah. You did? (laughs) Yeah, no, she... She, she and Elizabeth Taylor, apparently, well, because she married Eddie Fisher, so she converted to marry Eddie Fisher, and it, Marilyn converted to, to marry Arthur Miller. Is it easier if, if in Hollywood to convert? I think the question is whether or not her kids forget into JFS. <laughs> <laughs> what interests me, and I like the idea of what, what Jew, which Jews or which converts do the Jews as a people like to celebrate? Because when I grow up, people were always saying rather proudly, Sammy Davis Jr., he's Jewish, yeah, we you were know. About that Let's he have him dance, in the club. Exactly. And the same, do you remember when David Beckham was announced that he had a Jewish grandmother and the headlines were matzo balls, you know? <laughs> yeah, and he'd and been to a mitzvah. We, it was exactly. Front page of the and Chronicle. so we want to say, yeah, David, you know, he's a, he's a Jew. You know Join the I club. Forgot. Welcome. Do you know how I found out this week is Jewish? Harry Potter. Daniel Radcliffe <laughs> right. Noch. He's Jewish. His mum's Jewish. She won medals for dancing in Westcliff on Sea right. when she was there. He's Jewish. Harry I'll, Potter. I'll give you another one. Abra- coming, can't he? Abracadabra is an Aramaic word, as is the Harry Potter curse for death, which is literally I will destroy as I speak. So, I mean, you know, Jews get everywhere. I do wonder anyone outside here listening, thinking about converting. I mean, it just sounds Jewish. Uh, it sounds like a really difficult thing to be. It sounds like a really hard thing to get into. Would you, I mean, if you listen to us here, fetching and kibbutzing, would you want to really be part of this? I'd, I'd say do come in because the water's lovely and warm. <laughs> is it all we have time for. Uh, my thanks to Rabbi Jeremy Gordon and to Marina Benjamin and to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. Uh, we're taking a little break, as I said. Uh, we'll be back in September to welcome in uh, the new year. Until then, from me, Jason Solomons, and my producer, Sarah Peters on Sounds Jewish, it's goodbye and have a great summer. Shalom, shalom.